good to see you guys. It really is. I always look forward to uh, being with you. And I was just thinking, standing over there, I thought, you know, that is such a great video. Why do we need a sermon? Why don't we just go to the next song? <laughs> I mean, it has all of the right images, all the right words. It's fabulous. <clears throat> well, uh, as Torrin said a minute ago, uh, this morning we have some heavy lifting to do. You know, uh, some Sundays are uh, all about inspiration and rainbows and happiness. And you walk out of here and you say, oh, I see it feels so pumped up. Today, it's about making you depressed. And it is about sadness. Some Sundays are like that, you know? <clears throat> you look at your rest of your Sunday, tell me how many of this is true. And it's all about homework, you know, housework, or yard work. Amen. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about? This is one of those Sundays. Just saying. Um, I'm going to do the miraculous. I'm going to talk. Listen to this. Watch for this. I'm going to mention Jesus, Adam and Eve, Karl Marx, and Belle, Beauty and the Beast, all in the same message. See if I can pull this off. Well, you just watch. <clears throat> all right. We are, we are in a series that we launched last week, and the series is really about what is the good news? What is the gospel? Um, you would think that's a very obvious thing. Um, I actually ask students this occasionally just to test in class. Well, actually, right now we just came through a period of time at the seminary where um, uh, we have comprehensive exams. So if you do a master's degree and you, uh, when you get to the end of your master's degree, we actually have oral comprehensives still at Calvin Seminary. It's such a great torture moment. Anyway, so I, uh, what happens is a student finishes out all these classes for three years, and then they come and they sit, and then there's a panel of like three faculty members, and we get to ask them anything. Anything about the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, the history of Christianity, pastoral care. It's awesome. I've got some zingers. Anyway, so, um, but one of the questions you could ask, and I've done this, I said, what's the gospel? Now, you would think these people are going, they're going to go pastor a church. I think they're Christians. Anyway, they're coming out of the seminary and I go, well, so what's the gospel already? You know, or I'll ask, who's Jesus? <laughs> it's so awesome. But the gospel one, you can just see them freeze like deer in the headlights. Like, well, they must think I'm going to trip them up or something, but they just like can't give a really clear, what is the gospel? That's a really interesting thing that you and I ought to have in hand. We should know what this is. Last week, we started the series, and Torin did a fantastic job <clears throat> explaining that in the ancient world, there were a lot of Gospels. There are a lot of Gospels out there. In fact, it's a very interesting thing just to sort of ask yourself, let's give a definition. A Gospel is an explanatory narrative that gives you hope to live in this world. That is the definition of a Gospel. I know it means good news, but actually, it is an explanatory narrative that gives you hope to live inside of this world. So therefore, there are lots of explanatory narratives out there. I mean, in the first century, as Torrin said, they had one, and it was all about Caesar Augustus. Augustus actually had an explanatory narrative. He called it the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. So you have this message going out, and the New Testament is rivaling that message. But what the question really is, when you do embrace a gospel of some kind, is it a true and right gospel? This gospel of Augustus didn't last any longer than he lived. When he died, his message lived, died as well. The thing is, <clears throat> if you don't have a gospel, <clears throat> if you don't have some kind of explanatory narrative, you're going to fall into despair and unhappiness. That's the thing. 
You cannot live your life in this world if you don't have some kind of a gospel. You have got to have something to get through. You do. You have to. So everybody in this room has got a gospel. You do. The question is, is it a true gospel? Is it a right gospel? We're absorbing and sort of confronted with gospels all the time. In fact, I was thinking recently, Disney, Hollywood gives you a gospel. They do. I think if you really analyze, my grandchildren hate it when I do this. I just watched recently Beauty and the Beast, I think it was. And then we sit there and I, go, and I pause it and I go, now watch what's really happening here. He goes, stop it. I want to see Belle dance. And I'm like, no. It's all. Anyway, I analyze these things. But the gospel is for Disney that somehow everything comes out okay in the end, doesn't it? Dark castles become really bright with light. It's all beautiful in Disney. Hollywood gives us a gospel. Hollywood's gospel is hard work and love will restore anything that is broken inside of this world. My wife and I are just going through, we're actually watching um, uh, the uh, Academy Award nominees, you know, for the best picture. We just watched Coda. If you have not seen Coda yet, you'd owe it to yourself. Spend the $3.99 on Prime. It's an aspiring movie. But there you have it again. What is the gospel of Coda? It is that love and hard work will get you through in the end. All right, so what we are doing is we are trying to define this week, what, are, what is our Christian gospel? What is it we want to believe? And we have a symbol, sort of an icon we want to put on the screen right now. And you can see that there are six circles up there. And last week, uh, Torin did the first one in which he established how our gospel sits opposed to so many other gospels that were in the ancient world. But you'll see that there are four symbols up there, and these are critical for our understanding of what the gospel means for us. Here, go to the next slide, and you can see these are four words that ought to be, ought to be embedded in your consciousness. You should memorize these words. They are tattoo-worthy. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Have you heard these before? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So the gospel isn't simply one phrase, one word. It is a narrative. It is a story. The gospel is not simply, as some people will say to me in those questions in our comps, the gospel is Jesus died for your sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a narrative, and Jesus' death for our sins is a part of that story. It is a great idea, an important idea. It is pivotal inside of the gospel, but there it is. Our gospel is a great answer, but you've got to know what the great question is. That's how it goes. So the death of Christ for our sins is that pivotal moment. And it works like this also, like take Beauty and the Beast. I told you I've just been going through Beauty and the Beast, right? So anyway, Belle is in this town and everything is sunny and pretty and she's always happy and nice and everything. She ends up in this castle and there's this guy, the beast who's over there. And you know how the whole story goes. Uh, Belle and there's the beast and, and, and things, you've got this tension between light and dark. All of these images are playing right in here. Belle gets into the castle and therefore... We discover, isn't there is a thing with a flower, right? Rose petal has to, right? How's that go? She has to, he has to experience love before the last rose petal falls. Have I, have I, have I got this? Yeah. Sometimes I doze off. I'm like, really? Anyway, I saw the rose petal come in. And then the beast is feeling love, experiencing love. He turns into a handsome guy. It's just not a man. It's a handsome guy. And then they dance and everything as well. So anyway, that is a gospel. But it isn't our gospel. 
So what you and I want to do is walk through what are the elements in our gospel. All right. So today what I want to do is cover two principles that are essential for us. And here's where the heavy lifting does come in. But I think you're going to get all of them. The first principle. Here's the first principle of the gospel. And it's anchored to something like Genesis 1.31. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, have you ever noticed when you read the first chapter in the book of Genesis, it says again and again, good, 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 good. Everything is good. God is good. He made a good world. That's the first principle. The world is good. Why does Genesis 1 have to say that so many times? Because nobody in the ancient world 5,000 years ago believed that the world was good. I mean, they had gods, and the world is the outcome of a sort of, sort of heavenly struggle between violent gods. They were not good necessarily at all. And therefore, you had to live and sacrifice to these guys to make them happy so possibly they would protect you. But with the empirical evidence about the nature of the world, man, you were vulnerable if you lived 5,000 years ago. Disease, famine, war. It was a tough time to live. It really was. So you looked at your world and you would say, this world is an unsafe place. This is a dangerous place and the gods are not with us. So you could say it like this. The beginning of the Old Testament is an announcement of good news. It's a gospel. It's the beginning of a gospel. It says God is good. You take that for granted, but no one else did. God is good, and he has created a good world. His intentions are good. No one was thinking like that a long time ago. No one was at all. So we have psalms that talk about praising God and the beauty of his creation. That makes sense to me. But you do not need to be convinced of this. I know this from experience. I know that if I had a conversation with any of you, you'd probably say, yeah, basically, we've messed up the world, but fundamentally the world is actually okay. It is good. Every time you go to a national park, you look around and you see bison and deer and smiling bears and you say, oh, this is so nice. This is what God created. I know this is what he was intending from the beginning. You find a rainbow after it rains and you say, oh, that is so cool. God is such an artist. I love the world. You plant flowers and you say, this is it. I love the world. It is so beautiful. Okay. So deep in your gut, you have got this assumption that the world is a good thing. And I like that. That is why Disney gives us happy endings, because it really works for us. Anna always gets her man, Kristoff. Did I get it right? What movie was that? Frozen, the song that won't get out of your head. If I want to torture my grandkids now, I just put it on Spotify in my car on the radio, and I go, look at this new song. I just said, shut it off. Anna gets her man. Belle transforms the beast. Dark castles become light. The cold never bothered me anyway. <laughs> there are gospels out there. There are. And they resonate with our understanding that things always are good and they turn out A-OK. -okay. okay, I don't need to convince you of this. Therefore, we're just going to skip on by it and go to principle number two. This is the pill we don't want to swallow. This is the second principle. This is the heavy lifting. Increasingly, living inside of this world, 
we begin to suspect that this goodness formula may not be true. We begin to suspect that maybe things are amiss. We begin to wonder, wow, is this the way it's supposed to be? When this suspicion begins to arise, we immediately want to push it away because it's just so scary, and we turn on the Disney Channel. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, you know where I am in the Garden of Eden, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed clothes and covered themselves. Oh no, wait a minute. I thought we were starting in the Garden of Eden and I thought everything was really great. It was Disney-esque. But there is a snake in the garden. Adam and Eve fall and human life is lived out, not in a garden, but outside where there is labor and thorns and hardship. The first act outside of the garden is homicide. Oh, really? Is this the drama of our story that things began good and we therefore got kicked out of the garden and now humanity lives with this kind of burden? There is something sick in paradise. That's the pill we don't want to swallow. There's something sick in paradise. Now this takes two forms. Two forms. On the one hand, there is this sense we have that creation itself seems disordered. Creation seems disordered. The crystal vase that we possess has a crack. The beautiful silver pitcher we have has tarnished. Is nature bent? The garden grows weeds. And your sister has long-haul COVID. Is this the way it's supposed to go? Are you kidding me? I thought the world was good. Something is wrong. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is waiting? For the creation was subjected to frustration. Wait, creation is frustrated? Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What? Creation is in bondage? It's looking for the reversal of its decay? We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation is groaning? Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. If there ever was a good explanation of life in this world, would groaning work? My goodness. Something is disordered in creation. Here's the second idea that follows on from this. Humanity is also somehow disordered. And there is no escaping it. We all want to believe humans are fundamentally good. I have heard this a thousand times. Humans are fundamentally good 
but we simply have got some bad habits. History, however, contradicts that. So look, therefore, at Psalm 51. Here you have a description from King David about the character of the human heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth at the very beginning, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You might be saying to yourself, wait, 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 no, that's not right. You can't say that that this innocent newborn baby here has actually got anything wrong with it, that it comes with sin as a part of the package. Yeah, you can't be true. No, no, no. They acquire sin as they begin to grow up and they learn bad habits from other people. Well, what happens with you believe that until that child becomes about three years old and you send them off to preschool and they bite somebody. And then the teachers call you and your spouse in and they say, you know, we have to talk about this because your little boy, Torrin, he's a biter. (laughs) And then you say to yourselves, where did he learn how to bite? I know, it must be that when we argue in the kitchen, we solve our arguments by biting each other. (laughs) Where did that come from? Some imp surfaced inside of your sweet little child. And before you know it, they bite, and they can steal toys, and they can lie about it. Does anyone have a child that doesn't do something like that? Please, would you let me know? Because I would like to adopt them. (laughs) Humanity is disordered. Look at Romans 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. This is Paul. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. I hate what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, but it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good it's, the good itself does not dwell in me, but it's my sinful nature. Look at what Paul is saying. There is something. There's a virus being passed down through humanity. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. This is an amazing idea. Both Psalms and Romans 7 say the very same thing. We have a problem here. It's an enormous problem. What are we going to do about this? So we have a really issue with humanity. Now, let's nerd out for a moment, okay? So those of you who are working on an undergraduate degree, I know there are lots of you here. Um, And so therefore, let me just nerd out and go down a rabbit trail for a sec, because I think it's really useful. Every philosopher, from Plato to Pascal, said the same thing. Fundamentally, we have got to simultaneously address the wretchedness and nobility of humanity. It's all through human history. There are aspects of our lives together that are truly good and wonderful, but then there are other times where things happen where you you run to this conclusion that we are really, really wretched. What is this? Do we really need convincing? 
that given the right circumstances, every human is going to misbehave profoundly. We are all biters. Here, take a look at some pictures that I think are important. Do you really need convincing about the violence of humanity? Go no further than Ukraine. This is from Mariupol. It's a street just like the street you live on. And after those Russian tanks absolutely blew up the neighborhood, killing hundreds, a Ukrainian division came in with armor-piercing missiles and blew up the tanks. Mariupol. There is no finer example of that than right now. Surrounded by Russians in southern Ukraine, they are lobbing artillery into the city, one of the most beautiful cities right there on the sea, leveled, and they won't let the population out. No electricity, no food, no water. It is a siege campaign, and they are starving them to death. We've never seen this. Never. I watched on TV the other day this older Ukrainian woman gets interviewed She's like 85 years old. She remembers World War II, and she said, I thought we would never go back to this. This is what Hitler did. This is Stalin. Now, if those words don't mean anything to you, I'm not surprised. This is what humanity can do. Do you need reminding? Do you really need reminding the violent capacity any of us have? Here, here's another one. Do you need reminding? Do you need convincing that something is amiss with the world? Something is wrong with the climate? That is one of the saddest pictures I've ever seen. Amen? You know this picture? It's iconic. Here's another one. Do we need reminding that we have so polluted the world that as one scientist who's secular said recently, the earth itself needs a reset? and needs to get rid of one species. Whoa. Do we need reminding about how something is wrong? Here's another slide. Do we need reminding that we have deep problems of race inside of our own country and around the world, but right here at home? Do we need reminding of this? Here's another. Do we need to be reminded that areas that once were absolutely beautiful lakes are now dry deserts with dead fish. I don't think we do. Something is wrong. Something is amiss all around us. And we're saying to ourselves, oh, I'm not sure if I like this. I have this very scary thought inside of me. If you are a student at Cornerstone or Calvin or Grand Valley, it makes no difference. This is in your curriculum. Let me be even nerdier. Do you believe that humans can build good lives and good societies and care for the earth all by themselves? Do you really believe that? In fact, this has been a conversation that has been going on aggressively in the social sciences for the last 150 years anyway. There are some who are optimistic who say that humans do have an inherent capacity to do amazing things. There are those who are pessimistic that say, if you put humans on their own, they're going to do really scary things. How do I sort this out? Take a guy like Karl Marx, 
whose shadow is all across the 20 and 21st century. Here you have a kind of optimism that if you have the right social and economic conditions, you are able to create a utopian society of some kind. Here you have someone like the French Enlightenment professor Rousseau, who is romantic, and he says there are unspoiled impulses inside of each of us, and therefore what you simply have to do is educate them out. So therefore my goodness on the inside is going to emerge once you help me unlearn these bad habits. I have mentioned a couple of these. Here's, here's two iconic stories. Um, I, I don't think I've mentioned Tarzan in here before. <laughs> here's Tarzan. You guys know the movie Tarzan everything. You guys know this is a very old story. Pristine jungle, green and beautiful and wonderful. Baby that comes out of civilization gets lost and ends up in the jungle and grows up in the jungle and becomes a morally excellent person. Because sin is something you get from civilization, it is not inherent. That's the romantic view. Okay? Now, the other story, the other side of it is, and I mentioned it before to you guys, Lord of the Flies. My favorite movie and book. Had to say that fast. Here, what do you have? Are British schoolboys. They get dropped onto an island. And then you expect that maybe they are going to recreate the beauties of British society. And what do they evolve into? Savages. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about where humans are going to go? So therefore, when Jefferson and Madison are reading John Locke, they say to themselves, if we're going to create this society called America, they were shaped by this pessimistic worldview. They said to themselves, you had better put in place government and police because you need to impose social order on your world. Best illustration of this ever is one that everybody has now forgotten because it comes from 1977. So sweet. When the lights went out in New York. Have you heard of this before? So this is such a great moment for me because you don't know the story. So in New York City in 1977, in one winter, um, the electricity went out. It just did. And they burned all kinds of, I don't know what they burned, transformers. The lights went out in New York, like from 8 o'clock until the morning. And of course, I thought to myself, what a great moment. Light candles in your house, pour wine. That's a nice way to live it out, right? But it took less than an hour before the looting began. And New York City was looted. And the crime on the street was absolutely amazing. All it took was turning off the lights. And that other nature came out. It was Lord of the Flies. New York was a savage place to live. And so that's why Jefferson Madison said, you've got to have checks and balances in Washington because the judiciary, the Congress, and the exec, all can be corrupt. And therefore, you had better give them all equal power. If you're an education major, this is fundamental to theories about education and how it works. Do you believe that education has within it a redemptive mission? So therefore, we put children in school, and it's possible for us to so cultivate a great citizen out of them that our education is going to let them participate in society in a wonderful and constructive way. There's a huge debate about this. In psychology, if you're a psych major, there's a huge debate. I used to teach in the doctoral psych program at Wheaton College a long time ago. So. And I used to ask these budding psychologists, 
Is sin a therapeutic category? Or simply, can we work with pain management and behavioral management and bring people to a better place where they are less broken? Oh my gosh, it's very hard for them to say, sin is a capacity that's inside of us. The question is, can humans redeem themselves from this situation we're in? That's been the conversation for 300 years in the West. Can we redeem ourselves? Every year we want to say, yes, we can. But then suddenly something comes along and we say, oh, no, we can't. One of my favorite books is uh, somebody, something called The Shantung Compound. And um, I, it's, it's written by a guy who became a Christian. He was about 10 or 12 years old at the time. During World War II, the Japanese conquered much of China and when they got to China, they found all of these European families who were in business and government and everything. They lived in these beautiful homes. It was really remarkable. The Japanese rounded up all of these European families, well-educated, well-bred, the whole deal, and they moved them into compounds, surrounded them with fences with barbed wire. And then the Japanese leadership said, now, good luck, make a civilization for yourself inside the compound. The first sentence in this book is, if you want to know what's inside of a person, take away his dinner. The Japanese would throw big bundles of rice over the top of the fence and tell them all, sort it out for yourselves. If you want to find out what's inside of a person, take away his dinner. See, we are all very comfortable in this room right now. You are well-fed. You are clothed. You are in a temperature-controlled room. You have a wonderful church and a wonderful cool pastor who is not a biter. You have all of these good things, but I submit to you that we could put any of us in the right circumstances and we would discover things about ourselves that would surprise us. I was watching on TV um, some interviews on the Ukraine thing, and I watched this uh, Ukrainian Orthodox priest. He had the collar, the big cross, the whole deal. Um, he was being interviewed inside of his church, which had been blasted down, and a bunch of his people had been killed. And so the interviewer is saying to him, okay, you're the priest. You've lost your church. You've lost what do you want to do? What's next for you? And this priest says, right into the camera, kill Russians. Kill Russians. Given the right circumstances, what could we become? So what's wrong with us? What's the problem with us? Sin is rebellion. Whenever somebody comes up to you, this is the issue. Everyone comes up to you and says, no, you can't go any further than this. Something in your heart arises and says, you know, I think I really would like to do that. Don't eat from that tree. Wow, that's the best tree in the whole garden. I think I'm going over there. You say to your children, don't jump on the bed. And what's the next thing they want to do when you're not in the room? Jump on the bed. Um, at Wheaton College, we had this really weird thing where um, we have all these buildings that are like three and four stories tall, and students were scaling the buildings. What a great rock climb! 
And they would go up and they'd get on the roof and you'd send a look up there in a six-story building. you got all these guys, guys, up on the roof. And we were going, this is dangerous and they're going to break the roof and this is craziness. Do they do that in places like Cornerstone? I don't know. You have that tower. They should be doing that tower. So we made a great rule and we said, you may not climb the buildings and if you're cut up on the roof, caught up on the roof, it's $500. It's great. There was a great rule. And then as soon as we made the rule, the next week, what do you think was the most exciting, challenging thing that any student on that campus wanted to do? Climb and not get caught. When Eve is sold, don't eat of the tree, rebellion sets in. So therefore, our problem is not a set of bad habits. You are going to hear people say, well, if this person had a better school or better parents, he'd be different. Send him to a counselor. Send him to a psychiatrist. Send him to the army. I once said that to a student. You really belong in the army, guy. That'll really straighten you out. He'll get better. But our problem cannot be unlearned. That's the catch. The problem is hard-baked into our personhood. It is an inevitable feature of our personalities. We hate to admit it. We are a mess. We don't want to admit it. Don't tell me I am inevitably broken. Don't tell me that I am completely powerless. We are. You just have to be in the right circumstances and you'll find out if you're a biter or not. And I'm telling you, you are. We are, keyword, totally depraved. That's how broken we are. These reflexes have penetrated every piece of me, my morals, my reason, my behavior. This is not a problem of bad fruit coming from a good tree. This is a problem of the tree itself. So therefore, we make societies and civilizations and countries, and they just get worse. Corporate humanity makes things worse. The first corporate effort outside of the Garden Eden was the Tower of Babel. Exactly. It's just like that thing on Cornerstone. <laughs> we build estranged and violent societies. Go no further than Mariupol, Ukraine. I dare you. I double dog dare you today. Go onto the web and start looking at pictures of Mariupol. And you'll say to yourself, Huh, nobody in West Michigan would do that. Don't kid yourself. So therefore, we have to make sure that we understand. We build these kinds of societies, so therefore Christians cannot believe in utopia. There is no place in Christian thinking about utopia, none. Without help, I'll tell you what we're good at. We're good at creating wars, we're good at ruining the planet. We're great at ignoring the poor. We cultivate more mortal sins than you and I can count. We are people known for our greed, our envy, our lust, our pride, our anger. We protect our places in life and we fight off every competitor. We bite. Mean Girls and Fight Club, those are our movies, not Beauty and the Beast. And when we really honestly look at the future, it looks like something from a Will Smith apocalypse. I love Greta Thunberg. 
that sweet Swedish teenager who sits on the curb with her little sign. But she can't save us. She can't save us. Our gospel, therefore, is a part of a drama. It is a longer drama. It begins with an absolutely wonderful announcement that God's intentions were good. He put a garden right in front of humanity. And the second principle is an honest appraisal about who we are. Everything began good, and we drove the car right off the cliff. My God, who can save us from what we have become? Who can save our world from what it has become? I have had conversations with enough of you in universities and colleges, and I know this is at the very heart of your thinking, and it scares you. It scares you. What has happened? And do you have a future? Maybe you don't. Or as one student said to me, I'm not going to have children because I don't want them to grow up in this. My God, who can save us from what we've become? And that takes us to the third principle. The third step in our drama is the only the one, only the one who has created us can redeem us. Only the one who has the power to intersect this world and our lives can redeem us from this terrible situation we are in. That is the good news. But if you don't understand how dark the darkness is, you won't appreciate how amazing the gospel is. Take time, take time to understand the darkness. Don't live your life on the Disney Channel. Take time to understand the darkness, and then you'll have a way to understand this world, and you'll understand the gospel, which Torin is bringing to you next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you have created this beautiful world, and we confess, Lord, that we are captives of a sinfulness that keeps us in chains. Lord, save us from ourselves. Lord, step into our world and intervene. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.